The following audio is from Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to make and mature disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I preached a sermon called Characteristics of an Effective Church. And we talked about the church uh, that was meeting in Antioch. And uh, we looked at three things about that church, three characteristics of, of that church that made them effective. One, they had spiritual leaders within the church. They had people who pushed away from the table of, of learning and growing and decided it was time to start to invest in other people. They also had a spiritual focus, their heart was focused on God and their affections were focused on God in worship. And then finally they had a spiritual mission. And so this week we're gonna take that and, and break it down a little bit further and, and talk about the characteristics of an effective servant. Because it's one thing for us corporately to have a focus on spiritual leaders, spiritual focus and spiritual mission. That's important that we as a church, as a corporate body, are effective, right? It's important that we as a church are effective in, in aiming ourselves towards the right thing. But if we're not individually effective for the gospel, then we're not going to be effective corporately. We first have to examine our own hearts individually so that we are effective as individuals before we can be effective as a corporate body. There was a uh, documentary that's been recent and been all over ESPN and um, Real, real, you know, everybody's been talking about it, this Michael Jordan documentary. A lot of you guys may have seen it. Uh, I especially enjoyed it because Michael Jordan was popular right at the point in time when I was a kid and, um, you know, the shoes were cool and uh, I, it was, it was, he was like the guy. Everybody wanted to be like Mike, right? And so uh, I watched the PG-13 version of the documentary and uh, it, was, it was really good. It was cool to go back and see things because I remember some of that as a kid happening, which I wasn't huge into sports, but Everybody wanted to be like Michael Jordan. And, uh, and so I really uh, enjoyed watching that. And one of the things that I learned about his game, obviously he's, in my opinion, the greatest player that's ever lived. And if you're a, you know, a Le- LeBron guy, then sorry about you. But uh, he, uh, he, he's the greatest player that's ever lived. And I think one of the things that made him so great, apart from just his, his talent, was the fact that anybody around him, he made them better as well, right? He was, he was focused on the fact that he, he understood that, yeah, he had the talent, but in his own effort, he's not going to win. He needed a team that was strong around him as well. And so he really invested in the players around him and pushed them really, really hard to be the best that they could be. Uh, and he understood that you're only as strong as your weakest player, right? If you ha- the weakest person on your team is about how strong your team's going to be. You have to really work together as a team. And that's going to be true for the church body as well. Yeah, we want corporately to do what God's called us to do and be effective, but for us to do that, you as the individual church member have to be effective. You as the individual church member can't just show up on a Sunday and sit and enjoy the sermon and think that we corporately are going to be as strong as we need to be because Christ said that we are the body and each of us has a purpose within this body. And so you as the individual church member, even those of you uh, who may just show up on Sundays, our responsibility is to do more than that. God has called us to be and to do more than that and we must step out and be effective individually. And so in our text this morning, what we're going to look at, look at is, is servants and what it, what it means to be an effective servant of Christ. 
In Acts 14, verse 1, here's what it says. In Iconium, they entered the Jewish synagogue as usual and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they stayed there a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord, who testified to the message of his grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. But the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews and others with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they found out about it and fled to uh, Lycaonian towns of Lystra and Derby and the surrounding countryside. They were continued, there they continued preaching the gospel. So our focus this morning is just going to be those seven verses. And from those seven verses, we're going to pull four characteristics from, from these two guys uh, that, that we can see makes them effective servants. So number one, number one, the first characteristic is that they were opposed. They were opposed. It says, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Here's the truth. If you're living out the gospel and you're serving God in the way that he's called you to serve, which is proclaiming the gospel and making disciples, if you're doing that, there will be opposition. It's not that there might be opposition, it's that there will be opposition. If you are proclaiming the truth of God's word, people aren't going to like that. And there will be opposition. Um, a few years ago, back, well, a few, back in 2008, I had an opportunity to go on this mission trip uh, to Kenya. And it was a really awesome trip. And uh, one day, we're walking through the slums uh, of Kenya in, in Nairobi. We were right outside of Nairobi walking through uh, the slums there, and we're all walking as a group, and, and one of the things that, that really people struggle with over there is an addiction to sniffing glue. They get high off of sniffing this glue, and you'd walk around and you'd see, they'd have a little container, and they'd just be walking around sniffing it. And this one guy walks up, and he's sniffing glue, and obviously incredibly high at this point. And he's just kind of stammering around like he's drunk, and, and we have this line of people walking through, walking through the town, and uh, we're all heading to a, to a destination. We got these guys that are there kind of leading us and guiding us. And uh, I'm towards the end of the line. And uh, I don't know if it's because I was tall or what, but this guy like decided I was going to be the guy that he decided was going to be his best friend. And so he walks up to me and he's stammering around and he puts his arm around me and he's all walking next to me and he's saying stuff in a different language. I don't understand what he's saying. And uh, he starts kind of pushing me around a little bit. And I'm thinking... I'm going to go to jail in Kenya for hitting this guy because he, he doesn't like, if he hits me, I'm going to have to hit him back, right? And, uh, and so I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen with this situation. So I'm kind of getting a little uneasy. And uh, he's like, sure enough, he goes, wham, and hits me in the face. Like, in like Southeast Texas, you're taught by your parents, someone hits you, you hit them back, right? <laughs> Luckily, I didn't do that because you want to be an effective witness for the gospel. You don't want to hit somebody. <laughs> as you're in, you know, in return trying to share the gospel. And so uh, as I'm like, I'm processing my head like, what am I going to do about this? It didn't hurt that bad because he was drunk. And so I was like, I'm not going to hate him for that. But I'm trying to process in my head like, what am I going to do if this guy doesn't stop? And so I'm kind of like trying to push him off and laughing at him. And about that time, one of the guys that was with our crew runs up, grabs him by the shirt, and just pushes him over off away from us and starts yelling at him in some other language that obviously was very, like, intense. I don't know what he was saying, 
but it was really intense. And so, uh, you know, in that moment, I'm like, I can't do anything about this because I legitimately don't want to be, you know, the white guy that punches the guy in, in Kenya and, and ends up on the news or something. You know, I don't want to mess up our witness for the gospel in that moment. And so I'm processing my head, how am I going to handle this? I can't let the guy beat me up, but at the same time, I, I can't really fight back. And, and I understood in that, you know, through that moment and other moments in life that there, there is always going to be opposition. There's always going to be someone trying to fight against you. And we were told that there would be opposition, right? Jesus said, there's going to be opposition. He said in, in John 15, verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you. We're not of the world, right? As believers, we're not of the world. He says, because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, God reaches in and calls us out of the world. He said, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus told us, hey, I, I, you're not better than me. You're, you're not better th than I am. If I'm going to face persecution for this, you're going to face persecution for that, and we shouldn't expect any different. John 16, says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. That's kind of like a weird way to phrase that, right? Jesus says, hey, I've said these things so that you'll have peace in me. You'll, you'll live in peace. You'll feel comfort. And then we, we like that part. But then he goes on, in this world, there's going to be suffering. But then he says, be courageous because I have conquered the world. Listen, there's going to be opposition. If you're really doing what God's called you to do, if you're really proclaiming the gospel to people that you encounter, people aren't going to like that because the gospel is offensive. The nature of the gospel is offensive. When you look at someone and you say, hey, that stuff that you're doing in your life, that goes against God's word and that separates you from a perfect and a holy God, that message is not popular. And there will be opposition. Jesus said, expect it, it's coming. But he also said, take heart, don't, don't get too worried about it. Be courageous because I've overcome the world. And he also said, opposition is a good thing. Matthew 5, verse 10. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You're blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Opposition is coming if it hasn't already, if you're proclaiming the gospel, but opposition is a good thing. Opposition means that you're actually doing something and God says, hey, listen, if you're suffering for in my name's sake, then the reward is great. Our focus is not this world. Our focus is not the things that we see before us. Our focus is the reality of an eternity in the presence of a holy and a righteous God and that is the reward for us when we face persecution. There will always be opposition because... There has always been and will always be an opposer. Who is the opposer? It's always good to know who your enemy is, right? If you're in a battle, it's really good to know who the person you're fighting against is. Your opposition is not 
that politician that you despise that's fighting for things like abortion. Your opposition is not that militant atheist that wants to remove all remnants of faith from the culture. Your opposition is not that really annoying person that you're always arguing with on Facebook. That's not your opposition. We have one enemy, one opposition. Paul talks about him in Ephesians 6. He tells us, he says, for our struggle, our opposition, our war is not against flesh and blood. There's no person that is your enemy. But our struggle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Listen, there is a spiritual war going on all around us. There is. If you don't believe that, then you're not reading the Bible because it's all over there. There is a spiritual warfare and there is opposition, but the reality is, is there's one opposer. We want to look at people that we think are opposition to us and and, and are doing things against how we think they should be done. And we think that's the enemy, but that's not the enemy. The enemy is Satan. The enemy is the ruler of the darkness. And and, and he is the one pulling on the heartstrings of all these people. Those are just people just like you that don't know Christ. Those are people just like you who who are separated from a holy God who God has not revealed himself to them yet and made them alive in him and revealed to them the truth of their sin. They're just in in darkness. They're lost. They're, They're spiritually blind. They're spiritually dead. Just like you were before you knew Christ. Our opposition is Satan. Jesus talked about him in John 10, 10. He says, hey, there's a thief and he's coming only to steal kill and destroy. There's a thief out there and his sole mission is to steal, kill, and destroy. You are opposed because if you're living for Christ, if you're doing what God's called you to do, listen, Satan's not going to like that. His sole mission is to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to end any progress that God may make in someone's life. He wants to end any spiritual life that may come, and he's going to fight against you and fight against you and fight against you as much as he possibly can so that you won't be able to spread this gospel. I've been working in ministry for a long time with students, and I've seen the spiritual war for people's affections. I have seen people come and, and have a moment where they, they see the truth and the reality of the gospel, but yet there's this evidence of, of a war waging, in, waging inside of them, pulling them away from the truth that's been revealed to them. Where it's obvious that something inside of them is saying, just surrender. Just surrender to this reality of, of, of this gospel, but yet something else is inside of them saying, no, don't, don't follow that. Don't believe that. It's not real. And you can see it in these poor kids' eyes where, where they, they, they see the truth, but yet something is still pulling them and, and, and yanking them away from what God wants for their life. There's a spiritual war going on. And as much as God wants to use you for his purpose... Satan wants to rob your effectiveness. That's what he's trying to do. 
He wants to rob your effectiveness. You, in this morning, I imagine most of us in here have a relationship with God. We know God. We, we, we've put our faith and trust in, in, in Christ, and he has come in and saved us and made us into a new creation. And what comes along with that is this call to make disciples. Satan knows that he can't steal your soul away, but what, but what he does hope that he can do is ruin your effectiveness for the gospel. And so he tries to distract you with all of these things that are going on around you. He wants to make you ineffective. And his tool for that, for most people, is like Solomon. He gets you chasing after things, chasing after the wind. Right? He wants you to think that, that living a life for yourself is where purpose and meaning are found. But that's not what we've been called to do. We've been called to go and make disciples. That is what we're called to do, and there will be opposition to that call. He goes on, and this is my favorite part of this text. So there's opposition, there's this stuff going on where all this drama is happening, where the people are fighting against these guys as they're trying to share the gospel. Verse three, it says, so because of the opposition, they stayed there a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord. Because there was opposition, they recognized that as, hey, if there's opposition, there must be something going on here, so we're going to stay, we're going to plant our feet firmly in this town, and we're going to continue to proclaim the gospel boldly. We, uh, our second oldest, Jackson, is a quitter. He is straight up, like, does not want to do anything that's hard. As soon as things get hard, he's done. I'm trying to work on that a little bit. Um, but, but he struggles with wanting to put effort into anything. And, and so, probably about six months ago, he came to me and he was like, Dad, I don't want to learn how to play guitar. I want you to give me guitar lessons. I was like, okay. I said, it's going to be like, really difficult to like, learn that. You understand that, right? Yeah, 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 I'm good. I was like, well, when you play, you know, it's going to hurt your fingers at first. You're going to have to work through that. You understand that, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm good, I'm good. We had one lesson. <laughs> one lesson, and he realized it was hard, and he realized it hurt his fingers, and he was done, right? And, and many of us would never want to admit it, but as a culture, we're not much for commitment, right? We're not much for commitment. Do you know the marriage rate in the U.S.? is 6.5 for every 1,000 people. 6.5 for every 1,000 people say, you know what, it's good to commit to someone else. The divorce rate in the U.S. is anywhere from 40 to 50%. And that's true for churches too. Um, churches in droves are moving out of inner cities. As soon as ministry gets difficult, what people do is they take their little church and, and they sell the building and they move to somewhere where it's easier to do ministry. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to plant our feet firmly where we're at. And when there's opposition, when things get tough, we dig our feet in harder and we begin to proclaim the gospel even more boldly. That's what these guys were doing. As soon as opposition hit, they didn't tuck, tail, and run. They stood there and they fought. 
In the face of opposition, Paul and Barnabas, they stayed. It would have been really easy to run. Right? Things are starting to get difficult. You could have made any excuse. You know what? These people are never going to, they're never going to really listen. They're, they're fighting against me. We're, we're just going to run. But God's purpose for them being there hadn't been accomplished yet. And that was more important to these guys than what was easy. Psalms 37.5 says, commit your way to the Lord. That's what we're called to be, right? As believers, when you give your life to Christ, that's what salvation is. Listen, there is no like half-hearted surrender to God. You understand that, right? Like you can't just say, okay, I want the heaven part of, of salvation, but I don't really want to give myself to God. That's not what leads to salvation. That's not faith. Faith that leads to salvation is you surrendering your life to Christ and saying, you're going to be the Lord of my life. And what it means for him to be Lord of your life is that he has complete control of your life. That in turn looks like commitment. Commit your way to the Lord. If Jesus is the Lord of your life, that's what you're going to do. Trust in him. It says he will act. We want God to use us. Right? I mean, I think most of us in here, we want to be used by God. We want God to to do something through us and in us to accomplish his purpose in our life. I I would imagine that, that... if you're in church this morning, that that's probably the reality for you is that you genuinely want God to use you to do something for him. If that's true, for him to use us, we have to commit ourselves to him and his call on our lives. Regardless of where it leads. If you want God to use you, then when he says, hey, go, you go. And when he says, stay, you stay. It's not based on your desires or your whims for your life. It's based on what he wants. If you're committed to him, if he's Lord of your life, then you're surrendered to what he wants for you. And for these guys, that's evident. They wanted, I imagine they would have wanted to go because it's easier to go. But when opposition came, because there was opposition, they saw, hey, there's, there's a harvest here. And they were more focused on what God wanted than what they wanted for themselves. I know it's been several years since Brother Hayes retired. So I understand most of us in here know who Brother Hayes is, right? If you look at the building over there, it says Hayes Education Building. You know who Brother Hayes is. But there are some in here who have no clue who that is. Brother Hayes was the pastor here for over 40 years. And recently, about a year ago, passed away and is uh, receiving his reward in heaven. But that's what commitment looks like. Those of you who know Brother Hayes, that man stayed here for 40, I think it was like 47 years. 47 years in one church is remarkable. The average stay of a pastor in America today, six to seven years. That man gave 47 years here. I imagine many times over those 47 years, things got difficult. I imagine many times over those 47 years that there was conflict and controversy and struggle and pain and heartache. I imagine many times over those 47 years, he was thinking, you know what? 
it'd be easier just to walk. But he didn't. Why? Because the man was sold out to God. He didn't care about what he wanted for his life. He cared about what God wanted for his life. What an example to all of us. When things get tough, and, and, and again, opposition is going to come. You can expect it. If it's not coming, then there's a problem. It means you're not actually proclaiming the gospel. And so when opposition comes, our response to that is to stay and continue to speak boldly. They didn't just stay. It says they stayed and spoke boldly for the Lord. Boldness is an essential quality for commitment to the gospel. Right? If you're going to be committed to the gospel, you're going to have to be bold about it. It's not easy to get up and to preach truth. It's not easy to go to the people that you know and that you love and say, here's what the Bible says. Because it's not a popular message, especially in 2020. And so when things get tough and people start to say, I don't know if I believe that, or they start to ridicule you for believing that, what are you going to do? If you're going to stay, it's going to require boldness. Because you have to look in the face of your opposition and say, no, 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 here's what the word of God says. In Acts 3 and 4, we looked at that several weeks ago. Peter and John were arrested. They were threatened after healing a lame man and preaching the gospel. But the leaders, they couldn't deny the reality of what had happened, the power of the healing. But it threatened their, their, their livelihood. And so they, in turn, threatened Peter and John and said, if you continue to preach this gospel, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to beat you, we're going to throw you in jail, we're going to put you to death. And their response was, I mean, you do what you got to do, but we're going to continue to preach the gospel. And then in Acts 4, verse 29, they pray, and here's what they say. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. That should be our prayer. That when opposition comes, God, please give me boldness. Please give me courage to stand in that moment of opposition and continue to proclaim the goodness and the mercy of your love and, and, and the freedom of sin that you come to offer. God, please give me boldness to proclaim this message of truth. That is what we're called to do. We need Christians to start asking God for boldness in the face of opposition so we can start seeing some commitment to the advancement of the gospel. You know why churches are, or people are leaving churches in droves and, and why church attendance is dropping and why the culture is shifting so much is because believers in our world today are not being committed to the advancement of the gospel. They're not speaking boldly the truth of God's word. They're sitting back quietly and thinking, I don't really want to offend anybody, so I'm just going to keep this to myself. That is not the call. That's not the call. The call is to preach Christ crucified at all times and in all places, regardless of the consequences. We can't run when things get hard. We only have, we only leave when God's purposes have been fulfilled. He goes on in verse, the second part of verse three. He says, who testified to the message of his grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. So these guys, they're opposed. 
they're committed, and then they're equipped. I, uh, several years ago, I had this little car that I was driving, and the air conditioner went out on it. And I am a sissy when it comes to heat. I do not like any heat. Like, I, if the air conditioner's not working, I'm, I'm done. I will throw the car in the garbage and go buy a new one if I have to, but I will not drive in, in a car that doesn't have air conditioning. And, uh, and so I uh, went and talked to my grandfather who knows how to do all that kind of stuff. And he said, well, he, he was at the point where he couldn't get under the car and fix it himself, but he said, I'll talk you through it if you're willing to try to figure it out. I was like, deal. I'll, I'm willing to try anything, especially if it means air conditioning. And so I went and bought the compressor and all the parts to change it out. And uh, I literally know nothing about how to do this, by the way. I know what a wrench is, but that's about as far as I go. And, uh, and so I, I, I'm totally ill-equipped to do this. I, I don't even really fully understand how air conditioning works. I know I love it, but I don't really fully understand how it works. Um, and so I, I I'm, I'm buy all the parts that he tells me to buy, and then I get underneath this car, and step by step, he tells me what to do. All right, take this bolt out, take this bolt out, take this bolt out, unhook this cable, put this thing here, do this. And he's step by step telling me what to do. And, and I am not doing anything except for what he tells me to do because I know I will ruin this thing if I do it my own way, right? And, and I know in my own strength and my own knowledge, I am an idiot and have no ability whatsoever to fix this thing. And so step by step, you know, bolt by bolt, we get this thing put in and then we charge it up, and sure enough, glorious air conditioning. And it was like good as new. And, and so I, 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 I'm totally ill-equipped to do that, but, but with his help, with him guiding me, I was able to do it. We are totally ill-equipped to fulfill the Great Commission. You get that? Jesus said, hey, go and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That's the call. But in our own effort, we don't have that ability. You don't have the ability to change somebody's heart. No, nothing that you can say, no, no matter how eloquent you are, it doesn't matter how gifted of a speaker you are, it doesn't how, no matter how much stuff that you know, you in your own effort can't make a dead heart alive. You don't have that ability. So what did God do? He equipped us. What did he equip us with? He equipped us with himself. How cool is that? John 14, verse 16 says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. That's the promise. The Holy Spirit comes in and it dwells inside of you and is with you at all times, equipping you and enabling you to be able to preach the gospel. God's Spirit is with you and is in you. Why? Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit is an amazing gift. Do you understand the, re the reality and the implications of what that really means? That God's spirit literally lives inside of you as a believer? Like the same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives and breathes in you. That's an awesome gift. But that gift isn't for you. 
That gift is for God's purpose, right? What does he say? He says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you're going to be my witnesses. You get the power not just so that you can be blessed to have that spirit inside of you, but, but so that you can use it and do something with it and proclaim the gospel and so God can move in you and through you to do and accomplish his will in your life. That is what the Holy Spirit is there for. That is why he has equipped you so that you can do the work that he's called you to do. God gave us himself in the form of the Holy Spirit to equip us for his work. We want signs and wonders, right? He, they said that God revealed himself through their work by doing signs and wonders. We want that, right? How cool it would be to, to see all the things that we've seen in Acts happen today. Julie and I have talked about this a lot over the past several months as we've been going through Acts about, you know, why, why is it we don't see some of this stuff like we used to see? And I'm not here to tell you that, uh, that you know, God just, he just doesn't work that way anymore. God's God and he can do whatever he wants. But here's the reality, the work of the Spirit in transforming you into a new creation is God testifying to the message of his grace. The work that God has done in you is a miracle. We want all these weird signs and wonders, but, but we, we neglect to realize the fact that God has already done a sign and wonder in your own life. There's no explanation for someone who, who was on one path and, and then experiences the saving grace of God and immediately turns and goes the other direction. There's no other explanation that, that, that God made that person into a new creation. And we see that all the time, and yet we blow it off as oh, that's just someone getting saved. No, that is a miracle in and of itself. And we get to see that sign and wonder in our own lives, but also in other people that we get to share the gospel with. You want signs and wonders? Open your eyes, it's everywhere. The gospel is transforming people all over the place. And in our church, people are coming to know Christ and their lives are being changed. Let's open our eyes and stop asking for signs and wonders and see the fact that God's already doing signs and wonders right here in our very midst. You have been equipped. God has given you a story of transformation that can only be explained as the power of God. Use it to proclaim the goodness of his grace and mercy. Use your story. If God has transformed your life, if you're a believer this morning, you're headed down one path, God saved you, you're headed down another. Use that story of transformation, of God's power in your own life. Use that story to proclaim it to other people and say, look what God did in me. Look how God has changed my heart. There's no arguing against that. No one can say that didn't happen to you. Because if it did happen to you, it's evident in your life. That is the power of God working in you and he has equipped you with that story of transformation so that you can use it to preach the goodness of his grace and his love to those around you. last point they were relentless verse five but the people of the city were divided some siding with the jews and others with the apostles when an attempt was made by both the gentiles and the jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them they found out about it and fled 
to the Lycaonian towns of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding countryside. And here's the point. There, they continued preaching the gospel. The gospel is offensive. We know that. Opposition will come. We know that. We're to stay through the opposition until God's work, until God says, move on. And Paul and Barnabas' work was done in Iconium. But the work of the gospel continued on. God may move you, but he never excuses you from the work of the gospel. God may say, look, your time in this particular place, in this particular location is done. It's time to move on to the next location. But you're, you're called to, to go and preach the gospel that never ends. Right? And so what this looks like in modern 2020 is, hey, I may work at ExxonMobil. And I got a job there, and my job there is to do whatever it is they say, but more so to make disciples, to proclaim the gospel. At some point, it may be that I have to move to another place, to transition to another job. And, but, but that doesn't mean that I don't continue to preach the gospel, right? The, the, the gospel is, is something that we continue to preach and proclaim regardless of where we're at. We continue to preach the gospel. So wherever you are, preach the gospel. If you're in Nederland, preach the gospel. If you're at work, preach the gospel. If you're at home, preach the gospel. If you're at school, preach the gospel. If you're on vacation, preach the gospel. If you're at home, preach the gospel. I don't care where you're at, your call is to preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. That is, that is the call in your life. Julie and I have been saying it for the past six months because that's pretty much all that we see in Acts is this call to go and make disciples. That's the call in your life. And for these guys, they were relentless with it. There was no stopping them. It didn't matter if you beat them up. It didn't matter if you threatened to kill them. They were going to continue to preach the gospel. Their focus was singular. Paul writes in Philippians 3, verse 7. This kind of summarizes his thought process and who he was as a person. He says, but everything that was gained to me, he's telling his story, everything that was gained to me, all the stuff that he had before, the fact that he was, was, was this religious leader, this zealot for the law, the fact that he was educated, the fact that he was a Roman citizen, the fact that he had, had all these things that made him very important in the community that he lived in, everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. He says, all that stuff doesn't matter because of Jesus. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, all this stuff that, that was important to me before is no longer important because the only thing, my singular focus in life is to know and commune with Christ, to, to have a relationship with him is more important than anything else in this life. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things. We know this to be true for Paul. Eventually, he loses his life for the gospel. And he says, and consider them as dung. They're garbage to me. All the things that I used to think are so important in this life are nothing but garbage anymore in comparison to knowing and commuting with God. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. He says, my goal is is to know him. What is Paul aiming his life at? It's to know God. That's more important to him than anything else. 
and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. We want to use every excuse in the book for why we're not living on mission. We say things like, I'm just so busy. My life is, I've got all this stuff going on. I just don't have time to really invest in other people. I don't have time to build relationships with new people. I don't have time for that. I'm just so busy. Right? I got all these kids and, and they just demand so much attention and I just don't, I don't have the ability to do that or I'm just so exhausted. I work all day and then I get home. I'm just so tired. I just want to go home and turn on the TV and rest and, and have some alone time. Or, or we say things, well, my, my person, I'm just such an introvert. It's really hard for me to step outside of my comfort zone and to do things like that. Those are just excuses for not having a singular focus. That's all it is. You can lay every excuse that you want down before Jesus and his response to you is, am I Lord or am I not? Am I the king of your heart or am I not? If our focus was singularly on Christ, then all of those other things that we use excuses, just like Paul, would pale in comparison to knowing God and living on his mission for us, for, for us. Do you want to know him? Do you want to have a meaningful relationship with him? Do you want to be used by him? Do you want his mission to be accomplished in your life? Is that your singular focus? Or do all these other things surrounding your life distract you from that call. Remember we heard about that, that thief who wants to steal, kill, and destroy? He's trying to pull you off that focus, that singular focus, and say, no, 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 look here. You got this job. You got to provide for your family. It's really important. You got these kids. It's your responsibility to, to nurture them and, and to care for them. You got to take care of yourself. If you don't, you'll go crazy. You're so busy, you just don't have time. It's okay, God will understand. God knows he created you. He knows that your, your personality is, is more reserved and timid. He understands he's not gonna require you to step outside of your comfort zone. If these things or any of, any of these things are your focus, then you're not singularly focused on, on God. You're not. Just be honest. For Paul, it was evident that the man had a singular focus. He wanted to know God. He wanted to honor God with his life. He wanted to glorify God with his life. And there was nothing else that mattered. All the other things were just pieces of his life. He worked a job. He made tents at one point. He did stuff. He had stuff going on in his life. He had people trying to kill him all the time. But his focus was singular. Why? Because he, he was focused on that end game. 
right? He was focused on, on heaven and the reality of, of spending eternity in a relationship with God and being able to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. An effective servant of Christ is relentless in their pursuit of God's purposes for their life. So the question this morning is, are we effective? A couple of weeks ago, I asked that question, and I was asking us, corporately as a church, are we effective? But today, I'm asking you, are you effective for the gospel? Are you living out God's call for your life? Are you living on mission? Are you focused on the right things? Or are you allowing all the other distractions in this world to pull you away from what God wants for you? It sounds like we give up a lot to be Christians, but the reality is we gain so much more. Paul understood that everything else it's just straight garbage compared to knowing and communing with God and living out his purpose for your life. There's, that's the abundant life. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and you may have it abundantly. That thief, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and you ha- may have it abundantly. So many people are unfulfilled in this life. So many Christians are unfulfilled in this life. Why? Because they're not living their life on mission. They're not living out God's purpose for them. They've never shared the gospel with one person. There's nothing like sharing the gospel with someone and then discipling them and helping them grow in the Lord. Why? Because that's what God created you to do. That's what he saved you to do. And that's what he gave you his spirit to do. So will we do it? Will we start to live on mission? Will we be effective for the gospel? I ask you to stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. As the band comes here in just a moment, where's your focus? Are you relentless in your pursuit of God's purpose? Are you committed to stay through the opposition? And are you facing opposition? Are you facing opposition in this life? Is your witness so strong and your ministry so effective that Satan is saying, I've got to stop that? Or is your ministry so ineffective that there's no opposition at all? Where are you at? This morning, if if you're coming to the realization that, that I'm not focused on what I need to be focused on. I'm not living out this mission. I'm not making disciples. I'm not doing what God's called me to do. If that's you, then the response is, is singular. It's, it's repent. Ask God to forgive you and choose today to make that turn. You'll have an opportunity as the band sings. These, these altars are open. You can come down to these altars. You can pray and ask God to forgive you uh, of where your heart's at and, and surrender yourself to him. You can do that in your seat. But the, the challenge is simply that. God's called us to do something. Are we going to do it or not? Are we going to surrender to it or not? This morning, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you don't have a relationship with him, you're realizing that you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. 
Scripture says that when we give ourselves to Christ as Lord, we believe in Him and we confess that to Him and we'll be saved. You want to know what that means and what that looks like? As the band sings, I'll be standing down here in front. If you want to come and join the, the fellowship family, become part of our church, we'd love to talk to you about that. Whatever God's calling you to do is Julian sings here in a moment. You can come down these offices and pray or come and talk to me. I'm going to pray and then uh, we'll start this invitation. Thank you so much for listening today. And we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.